Welcome to season two of the Vet Visit podcast. I'm Dr. Mike McFarland, Chief Medical Officer at Zoetis. I've been very fortunate to meet some inspiring people in my more than 35 years as a veterinarian, and I want to bring them to you as we look at the past, present, and future in the veterinary profession. In this week's episode, we're discussing one of the most important topics in veterinary medicine today, chronic pain in our pets. In my humble opinion, one of the most effective ways of completely destroying the human-animal bond. Joining me for this critical dialogue are two of the world's most noted experts in veterinary pain management, Dr. John Ennis from the CBS Group in the United Kingdom and Dr. Duncan Lascelles from North Carolina State University. We had such an extensive conversation around chronic pain that this is the first of another two-parter. So let's get to our vet visit with John and Duncan. So I've talked a lot about the human-animal bond on vet visit and the science supporting it, but nothing, and I mean nothing, can be more devastating to the human-animal bond than chronic pain. When dogs can't go on long walks or runs anymore with their owners or cats can't play and jump, it can really affect how pet owners positively interact with their beloved four-legged friends. So today I'm very pleased to welcome two of the world's experts on chronic pain in animals. First, Dr. John Ennis, a small animal orthopedic surgeon and the chief veterinary officer at CVS Group, one of the largest integrated veterinary service providers in the UK. And Dr. Duncan Lascelles, a globally renowned researcher at North Carolina State University where he directs the Comparative Pain Research and Education Center. His research is focused on answering critical questions about pain control in animals. Gentlemen, welcome. Why don't you introduce yourselves, John? Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for the kind introduction. I'm currently Chief Veterinary Officer for, for CVS Group UK, but but I, I jokingly say that I'm a recovering academic. So like Duncan, I used to live in the, the uh, university world and uh, do research around osteoarthritis. Um, did that for 20 or so years. And, you know, w- what what interested me about osteoarthritis is it's so common in dogs and cats, and therefore the impact one could have with with researching and improving the care of dogs and cats with osteoarthritis could be huge. So I'm really pleased I chose that research path. And now I'm back in in practice. Uh, I'm able to, you know, deliver some of that that understanding to my colleagues, uh, but also to the patients that I see. So I still see cases in the clinic as well. Well, it's great to have you here, John. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm really happy to have you both together today is that I know you and Duncan have worked together in the past. So let's hear from you, Duncan. Thanks very much for that introduction. Pleasure to be here with you both. Uh, so I'm, I'm a surgeon, small animal surgeon. Pretty much I spend 100% of my time engaged in clinical and basic pain research at the moment. So my life is kind of split across those different areas. On the clinical side, I really focus on developing ways to measure pain and then using those methods that we've developed to better understand what works to alleviate pain in cats and dogs. And then on the basic side, um, I've got a reasonably robust research program investigating the role of neurotrophins and neurotrophic factors in osteoarthritis pain and cancer treatment related pain. After vet school, I then took up an opportunity to work as part of the Bristol Pain Group under Avril Waterman Pearson. That's where I met John. 
I think on our on our first day of, of actual work. And um, uh, John, you've actually you actually inspired me to think more about osteoarthritis, which is where I'm, we're doing a lot of my work now. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I remember the day we met very well, Duncan. So there I was as a I'd come from Liverpool Vet School, and it was my first day working at. Bristol Vet School, and I think we we had to be fitted out with our scrub suits. We went into this. I went into this little room to get my scrub suit, and I was introduced to this uh, new PhD student who is Duncan, and um, uh, that was the start of a great you know working relationship. Indeed, yes, yeah. Why don't we start uh, by taking somewhat of a historical view on how we've addressed chronic pain in cats and dogs? How have you both seen veterinarians and their clients start to recognize animal pain as is really a serious medical issue and begin to understand chronic pain in particular and how it affects our pets you know can we measure it um, how has this changed over the years i think it's very easy for us at the current time to take for granted the fact that chronic pain has an important impact on pets um, you know, that's that's where we are at the moment. But if you just look back at some of the history, I think a number of things came together, at least from my perspective. You had the combination of dedicated researchers who then were exposed to tools, the, you know, essentially the, the non-steroidals that were being um, developed and approved. And I think those two things then came together to lead to dramatic advances in our ability to measure dimensions impacted by pain. That then leads to a greater awareness. I think the one thing which um, now we're seeing, which is great, is a greater involvement of owners in the whole process of detecting and managing chronic pain. That's critical because we detect, we measure chronic pain based on behavior and owners are the best people to assess behavior. I suppose the... The further uh, light bulb moment for me was when I um, went to do my PhD. It was a real revelation for me because suddenly um, I was exposed to research work around uh, engaging with human patients and how they would tell doctors about their pain. Um, and that's how human doctors were measuring the effects of arthritis. And that really made me think that, you know, we, we need to engage with owners here. And that's when I started you know, developing tools that you could use with owners and interrogate them in a standardized way. Yeah, I, I remember you commenting on this, John, uh, literally 25, 30 years ago. And I remember listening to you and thinking, you might you might just have something there. You well, might just be right. Time will tell, Don. And now, and now I'm... Well, no, no, you were, you were, you were absolutely right. It is, it is so critical to engage owners in the detection of pain, particularly chronic pain. We've talked a lot in the first season of Vet Visit about the history of how pets have moved from the backyard into the house and then eventually even in our beds. And then you take what's happened just in the last two years with the pandemic, that relationship with our pets is tighter and more front and center more than it's ever been. And I can't help but wonder has that potentially changed just how sensitive the typical pet owner is to discomfort in their pets when they're home with them every single day? I think um, society has changed and um, pets are firmly embedded within our families now. 
Um, and I think people gradually developed more empathy for pets and a, a real true understanding that they feel pain as well. And, you know, the, the primary aim of a, of a veterinarian is to relieve pain and suffering in animals. Um, and I think a lot of our pet owners, they, they recognize uh, that chronic pain is a significant issue in, in their pets. Um, and uh, they, they want us to help them. And uh, that, that partnership is really important. So what, what about cats, though? I mean, very, very different from where it was in the mid-80s when I graduated from veterinary school. But it still seems to be a challenge for us to get cats squared away in terms of our ability to diagnose them with chronic pain and then, of course, to treat them. So diagnosis is a challenge because we rely on behavior. And uh, cats, we, we interact with cats differently than dogs. We don't force cats to engage in specific activities like going on walks, jumping in the car, going up and down stairs. And so it's really a hands-off observation of behavior. And that's, that's not easy. Um, now, now we're back to reaching out to owners. Desperately important. We need to reach out to owners and educate cat owners. Cat owners are incredibly observant. But again, we just need to help join the dots there. And things like simple videos, cartoons, images, um, that those things can do the trick very well. So this education doesn't necessarily need to be a great burden. Yeah, I used to hear that over and over again in practice where, um, you know, you're, you're talking to a cat owner, the cat's 12, 13 years old. You know, how are things going? Well, slowing down a little bit, sleeps all day long, you know, just, just getting older kind of uh, activity. And, and frankly, we had so few options for managing pain in cats. I think most of us were ready to just let that go as, a, as just an aging behavior. Yeah, and Mike, we you know we're lucky. We we do have the global expert on assessing chronic pain in cats with us today, Duncan. So I, I was teaching a, a a group of veterinarians this week um, around arthritis, and they they were certainly frustrated by cat owners not not recognising um, chronic pain in their cats. But I think Duncan, if I'm right in saying, and you can tell us more about this, but one of the things that you found in your research is that when you provide analgesia for cats owners don't always spot the improvement but when you take it away they really spot the reduction in analgesia and they they find that more easy to to spot yeah you're absolutely right uh, we found that it has been difficult for owners to detect pain relief but they really absolutely as you said they really see the deterioration when you remove that and so again it goes back to the fact that owners are observant um, we can engage with owners as team members in this in this detective process, detecting chronic pain in the home environment. I think most of us have realized when we've treated chronic pain patients, it's 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 frequently going to take more than one dose to start to see the impact. So that uh, therapeutic effect builds over time after multiple doses, and uh, but the withdrawal of that pain relief can quickly cause the the pet to deteriorate yeah that 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 slow onset of pain relief that's a, that's a fascinating topic we um you know because it has so many facets there is learned avoidance of pain you know and so even once pain relief is on board um uh, humans animals may not necessarily immediately change their behaviors because they've learned to move to, to 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 function in a certain way that that will help them avoid 
pain. Um, you know, in the past, we've not had good and long-term analgesics for cats. Um, but now we do, at least in Europe, we do. And I, I think what I sensed in the room this week when I was teaching that class of veterinarians was a, a real, you know, resurgence of interest in addressing this issue with with cat owners because now we now we have something we can really work with uh, in the form of a monoclonal antibody against nerve growth factor for cats so suddenly there's this confidence that we can we can go in there and actually make a difference so it's one thing wanting to educate owners but we also needed something to to give to owners to help and we didn't we didn't perhaps have good tools in the past now i think you mentioned earlier john that uh, osteoarthritis is very common in pets, and I wonder if if either of you could put a number on that. I mean, how common is it really uh, for dogs and cats to have osteoarthritis that requires some sort of therapeutic intervention? Well, m maybe I can talk about dogs, and Duncan can tell us about cats. He's the he's the cat expert. Um, Seems fair. Yeah, we'll split it up. I spend my time in orthopedic specialty practice, but so, you know, I would say 90% of my work involves joint disease. Um, so OA is always part of that. Um, but in, in GP practice, you know, we know that depending on which study you read, somewhere between 10 to 20% of adult dogs overall will have OA. And if you look at dogs over the age of nine, we're, we're looking at 25 to 30% of those will have OA. I'm going to agree and disagree. I think maybe another way of looking at that is there is osteoarthritis, the disease, the organic disease, which arguably is of no interest clinically unless it's associated with pain. And so I think, you know, what, what, we, what we're interested in clinically is osteoarthritis that is associated with pain. I, I would love to revise your numbers a little bit if I, if I, if I dare go down this route. Um, in dogs, I, I think it's higher. Um, and I think some recent data would suggest, it's kind of soft data, but it would suggest that maybe um, it's up near about 40% of all dogs that have not just osteoarthritis, a disease, but pain associated with that. Could there be some cultural differences, perhaps? You know, in some cultures, uh, the dogs are larger, maybe they're more active. I know the typical dog owner in Colorado is going to have a larger dog that's uh, uh, out hiking and running on a regular basis. That could potentially influence the numbers, I suspect. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, Mike. We will see different um, distribution of different breeds and dogs sizes and types uh, across different territories. So, you know, in the UK at the moment, we've got an, an explosion of uh, French bulldogs over the last five years. And um, yeah, I would imagine that will be driving up the, the amount of arthritis we'll be seeing in future years, yeah. And, and I'm sure there are geographical differences and you know that's where one of the problems comes with interpreting data. You know, studies are done in very defined geographical locations Case in point, um, our work in cats would suggest that about 90% of all cats have radiographic evidence of osteoarthritis and degenerative joint disease. Um, and further, that uh, probably about half of those have detectable pain associated with that osteoarthritis. But that study was done here in North America, in North Carolina. And I think you have to ask the question, you know, are those data generalizable to other geographical locations? So, John, you alluded to this a little while ago that um, this is this is potentially a very exciting time in veterinary medicine as the industry is ready to take 
I believe, a, another big step forward in pain treatment innovation. You know, 30 years ago, it was, it was steroids and human health products, NSAIDs. Then there was this tremendous attention on, on chronic pain management as veterinary-specific NSAIDs were developed in the late uh, 90s and early 2000s. And in fact, I think that's when you and I met, Duncan. And I remember it was an extremely busy time for me as we talked endlessly uh, about the Cox Cascade. So most veterinarians who graduated in my area, say the mid 80s, received very little formal education on pain management. How has that changed over the years? I think, uh, yeah, you know, originally it was really focused on physiology and biology. Um, and the shift I've seen is now there's much more incorporation of how we measure pain um, and evidence-based treatment recommendations. And so I think we've seen um, a shift in education um, and a focus, rightfully so, on the measurement. And again, going back to the use of owners, I think one thing that the veterinary profession has been doing and needs to do more of is reaching out and engaging owners in this process. And I see that coming into education. Okay. And were there, were there any uh, specific key drivers in, in the progress we've made over the last 30 years? I suspect it's a combination of the products that have come on the scene during that period of time, our collective efforts to educate veterinarians and pet owners, and then also a, a number of, of very important organizations have popped up that are specifically dedicated to pain management and the education thereof. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, we, we've seen these these parallel developments in the veterinary profession. There's been so much development in the last 25, 30 years. Um, and, you know, I think the, the pharmaceutical sector has to take a lot of credit here because the, the R&D that has gone on in that sector has been incredible to deliver specific medicines for dogs and cats. And the partnership with academia, uh, both at the basic science and clinical end of the, the research, has been fantastic to see. Um, the professional organizations that have cropped up in, in the veterinary profession, in the veterinary nursing profession. And, you know, I think technicians and nurses have, a, have, a, have played a huge role in this because they, they speak to clients an awful lot. And uh, some, I think uh, clients can confide in technicians and nurses sometimes more than they would in a veterinarian. So I, I, I think we, we have to give all the professions credit here uh, that we've, we've, we've become educated and then we've passed that education on to our clients day in, day out in the consulting room. I also appreciate the fact that you brought up technicians a moment ago because I remember vividly um, in my practice years, especially towards the late 90s and early 2000s, it was the technicians that were really at the forefront driving, you know, this patient is in pain, we have to do something. And a lot of times veterinarians were kind of uh, guilted and drug into that engagement because the technicians would insist on better nursing care for their patients. I think you're absolutely right. And um, uh, I think you, you still very occasionally from from an older veterinarian might hear, well, a little bit of pain is a good thing post-operatively. And of course, that, that, that is a very old fashioned view now. We, we know that pain is not a good thing in any shape or form. Um, but I agree with you that nurses and technicians, because of their, their closeness to the patient, their closeness to the client and their empathy 
uh, with with our patients. I think they've they've been absolutely instrumental in delivering better care within the clinics. Yeah. I just want to emphasize one thing, and I remember way back in the day, early 1990s, um, when I first started working with non-steroidals perioperatively, and none of us actually believed that they would make a meaningful difference to these patients. And yet when we started using them, we suddenly saw patients, post-operative patients that were more alert up around moving they weren't drooling and lying in their own saliva uh, you know because of opioid use uh, it was just the, the 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 quality of recovery the 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 ability of these animals to look more normal was so dramatic and so i think it's it's tools that really do help make a difference you use tools you see the benefit and that moves the whole field forward for everyone yeah, I remember a number of times, Duncan, back in those days, um, uh, turning uh, uh, loose a, a recently spayed dog, okay, and it goes back home to the pet owner, and their first comment is, she acts like nothing ever happened. Yeah. You know, and that certainly wasn't the case uh, back when we were relying more heavily on on uh, uh, opioids or when we were still using metaphane and the, the effects lasted forever and ever. I'll be back next episode to finish that conversation with John and Duncan, where we take a look at what lies ahead for the treatment of chronic pain in our pets. At Zoetis, our purpose is to nurture our world and humankind by advancing care for animals. I'm Dr. Mike McFarland, and I hope you'll join me at the next vet visit. <laughs>